Welcome to the Sound Lens Podcast. I'm Louise Fagan. And I'm Jillian Wise. And today our guest is Molly Peacock. Molly is a poet, biographer, essayist, and writer whose multi-genre literary life has taken her from New York City to Toronto, from poetry to prose, and from words to words and pictures. In addition to the biographical life stories she's written, Molly's deeply personal work shares some of the more intimate moments of her life, including love, loss, family, and relationships. Welcome, Molly. It's great to be here. We kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but my mom and I were talking about our approach to our conversation with you, and we were having a bit of a hard time as to, you know, where to start. Your life and work are so rich, super prolific, and it's all really extraordinary. And honestly, we kind of just want to get to the heart and the meat of it. So, you know, our first real question is, why do you think that people resonate so much with your work? Well, I think they resonate with it because I'm quite direct. I'm very candid, but I also believe that life is complicated and I don't shy away from complications. I want in my work to be both clear and allowing for complication. And clarity and complexity, that's a sort of a tall order. So that's, <laughs> but that's always what I'm aiming for. Do you think that's why you've, you've had such a, a career that has had such longevity? And it's, it's not, not talking even just the length of time, but the breadth of the work that you've well, done. Well, it amazes me that here I am at 76, about to just just having another manuscript of poems accepted by my poetry publisher, W.W. W. Norton. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, writers, you can compare women writers to actors. You see women actors, of course, fade away at a certain point. And women writers often do that too. Then there are the equivalents of Oh, Helen Mirren and Maggie Smith. <laughs> um, uh, and to think yes. that, I, that I've catapulted into that, somehow she went the distance category. It, it, it amazes <laughs> me. And, I, and wow. I am not sure how to account for it, except to say that I'm almost always in forward motion. I'm almost always thinking of something I'd like to do next, I almost always have several different projects going and several different ideas. And it's if I could describe my mind now at my age, I would call it a tapestry mind, that there are so many threads woven. And there's been, I feel in some ways that I've been weaving that tapestry my whole life. And now, finally, I unroll it and I see all the characters, all the flora, all the fauna, all the stuff. And it's, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. You have to live long enough in order to see that tapestry unfurl. So that, that's where I am. And I feel very lucky to have practiced many aspects of written art. Always, I think, infused by my poetry. It's amazing, too, how you've stayed so engaged with it yourself. How have you managed to keep it interesting over the course of these years? Keep poetry interesting or keep my work as a memoirist, biographer? I think overall as a writer, uh, it's not, maybe part of that is, you know, having different ways of, of expressing yourself. Um, I guess first I would say 
life is interesting. The lived life is interesting. And if you write about the lived life, which I do, I write about my own life, but I also write about other people's lives. I'm very curious about people's lives. I'm curious about your two lives. And when I think of that, probably it's that curiosity that drives me and just some sense of being very, very curious about my own emotions. You know, why am I reacting in a certain in a certain way? And and where does that where does that where does that come from? How does that bubble up in me? And what are the circumstances that cause that? One of the fun things that you discover if you've written a memoir, and I I think everyone should write one, even if they don't publish it. I mean, somewhere in a back drawer is your memoir. <laughs> and what you realize after you've written a memoir is that your life has a context. You don't just exist, you know, as a wonderful individual going about your life. Circumstances influence your life. And once you've written that down and seen how people influence you, how your responses to your environment influence you, how sometimes that's deeply negative and how you have to respond to those obstacles, that puts you in a kind of context. And you can be curious about that context too. So all of it is in the service of remaining alive to whatever situation you're in. So it's always interesting. Wow, that's so fabulous. And I feel though when you're talking, it's you're in this dual role if you're writing a memoir or even just maybe even how you curate your words for your poetry. You are in self-reflection, but you're also observing. So you're like in yes. the middle of it, but also at the same time outside of it. How do you, that, I don't know how you balance that? Is, that. That's an interesting capacity of being inside an experience and also being a witness to that experience. And the witnessing self, the mature self, has to really love the self that's doing the experiencing so that you're very accepting and friendly toward whatever mistakes and foibles <laughs> you're also making and doing and engaging in. So it's it's a process of being a sympathetic witness to yourself. And until, you know, that takes some years of living to have that sympathy for yourself. You can look back and say, oh, you know, that that little girl, uh, look at her. She's trying hard. And you can transfer that even to now. Uh, you know, oh, <laughs> this woman, she's she's right. She's trying hard. Yes. <laughs> Where does the idea of I'm going to be a poet come from as a child for you? Well, Jillian, it comes from wanting to be something special. I didn't know I wanted to be a poet. I just knew I wanted to be something special. And I drew, I painted, I acted, I wrote stories. But when I was writing stories, I wasn't a very good plotter. I, I, what I was good at was sinking into a still moment in time. And that is what a, that's the root of poetry, of lyric poetry anyway. So I didn't realize, I couldn't have named that was the thing that was drawing me. But in fact, 
poetry was drawing me because of those experiences. And it wasn't until, well, I was 12, and my seventh grade teacher, whose name I always mention, Mrs. Bernice Baumler, and who is still very much alive and someone I hope to have lunch with this very summer, allowed the class to choose poems to write about and to write poems. And the class was like a little art colony. So I just began generating these things. And I would say that that was the beginning, that there was a teacher who made a space, that there was an impulse to be something special, but then there was an adult who made a space for me to find what that was. All you adults out there who are making space for children, thank you. And I certainly thank all of the people in my life who made space for me to create. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, as you say, of someone who just opened a, a window yes. yeah. for you. And you made it a door and made it a whole, a whole career. Or just crying through the window somehow. <laughs> and so when you were an early poet, a younger poet, what, what were those early days like for you? I wrote a little bit of poetry in high school, but not a lot. And then when I got to university, I went to a state university, Binghamton University. It's part of the New York State system. And I happened to have had a poet, Milton Kessler, who taught a poetry class that was a prerequisite for an English major, so I had to take it. And, the, and he was quite gruff, and he said, you, you take my creative writing course next semester. So I obeyed, but I, I enrolled, but I didn't, I thought, well, I, I'm going to need a portfolio. I have to go into a writing workshop. I had no idea that I could be laid back about it and just sort of saunter in the first day and then do something. I thought I went home for the winter vacation and I said, okay, I've just got to start writing poems and how will I do it? And I just taken a poetry class. So I thought, okay, are there poems that I loved that were models and can I create stanzas like those? So immediately, I looked for some structure. Not all poets do that. If you were interviewing many other people, they would just say, well, I started blurting it out. I didn't. I started with a pattern. I started with four-line stanzas because I wanted to write about my family, and there were four people in my family. And I knew what I wanted to say, and I made three numbered sections, and I had two stanzas in each. And it let me, it released me. Having, having a form just released me into being able to not fill the form exactly, but be guided by the shape. And any gardener who's listening to this understands this, uh, that you have a certain dimensions to a garden plot, and that's going to determine what it looks like. And so inside that shape, I could play. And play is a really essential part of art. And I could also write about something so painful and know that I had an exit from the pain. It's really interesting because, you know, I think with any kind of art form in creativity, that's got a bit of sky's the limit. Like you could, you know, you can create whatever you want to create, but 
um, I, I find that that can almost be a bit suffocating sometimes or almost restricting because you don't really know where to start or what to do. So you having those kind of fences for you and what you found works for you to be able to create within that. It's great that you were able to kind of identify that that was one of the key elements for you. I think it's terribly important. And I think it's why people are afraid sometimes to make art. It's just that fear of the blank page or the blank canvas Mm -hmm. or the, the nebulousness of it, the chaos of it, like the where do I begin? And you just begin with whatever the words are that come out of your mouth, but there's a little shape to it. And it's, it's, it's so, so helpful. It is helpful to hear you say that. And you lay it out very simply. But that's deceptive because (laughs) your work is anything but simple. I mean, there is a, you say the themes can be complicated and the poetry, though, it's that those choice of words. One thing I, I love and appreciate about your poetry is that I can read the whole thing and I can be going along with the story and get to the final word. And it, I have to rethink, or there's this like flutter of, ah, oh, that's what the meaning of everything else I just read. There's like this yeah. new layer kind of reveals itself. And so there's a complexity that is refined, yes. right? That can come off maybe as a bit simple, but it is, no, there's it's no, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of talent and grace in, in, in building your work. Yes, that's true. And I think that I have a great interest in how to build things and how to build a poem. And therefore, I have a real interest in, and I've learned how to do a lot of arcane techniques. You've interviewed other practitioners of other arts, and they've explained, oh, for instance, techniques of weaving. And there are a lot of techniques in poetry. And rather than being afraid of them, I'm, I'm into it. I, I, I like it. It's like people who build canoes. I mean, you've got to really, really be into boat building to build a successful canoe and uh, have a, tools and techniques. And I love that stuff. I just absolutely adore it. It's like, I mean, if you're a gardener and you've got your favorite pruners, your favorite clippers, to have tools and a bag of tricks that helps you. I mean, the bag of tricks isn't there just to make tricks. It's, it is to get you out of all the jams you've managed to get yourself into when you're making the, the artwork. And also part of that is, is my love of complexity. If you look at a leaf, yes, you, can, you could draw the leaf and just draw the exterior shape. And we would all know that's a leaf. And that would be quite abstract or even like a cartoon. And I do do a little cartooning too, and I love that. But if you really look and you see the system of veins in the leaf, the variegation in the colors, if you sink into it, it's a world in itself. And it's a complex world and you're observing, 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 and observing eventually becomes knowing. And I guess I, I would say to anyone who's, who's making art, if you don't know what to make of something, if you don't understand something, and you just keep observing it, sooner or later, you'll come to a, an apprehension of it or an understanding of it, even though you couldn't, for instance, 
make a definition of it. And that it makes an artwork rich, I feel, because it because there are so many layers in the world and then you can reflect that in your artwork. Or in my case, you know, in a sonnet with a rhyme scheme and a syllable count and and all of all the complexities of language that make make it musically appealing as well as I hope emotionally meaningful. Your life and love and lifelong love with Michael Grodin is the stuff of poetry itself. It was infused in both your works and the life you created for yourselves. You were both very independent writers, but you also managed to somehow support each other in these very diverse, often cross-continent escapades. How did you manage to do that and, and how did you create that life together? I actually feel I should tell a little bit of our story. And that is, I saw this incredibly smart boy uh, when I was 13. And he was in the English class across the hall. And he was one of those boys who jiggled his leg at his desk. Do you know that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, seeing this, where the first thing yes. I noticed about him was that he was, there was this kid whose leg never stopped going. And a couple of years later, we ended up in the same class. But I had noticed him when I was 13 and then started actually talking to him when I was 14 or 15. And then by the time we were 16, we began to date one another. He was my first boyfriend in high school. <laughs> and he was incredible incredibly, incredibly smart. And I knew that. And I was incredibly, incredibly creative. He annoyed me. He was so smart and able to, he was smart in a, in a technical way. He was both, he was very mathy and liked solutions to things. And I was very arty and had a, a, a big tolerance for ambiguity. My emotions drove him crazy. His Needing to put everything in a box drove me crazy, but we had this attraction to one another. He supplied a kind of security. It's an intellectual security in my life. I supplied, weirdly enough, an emotional roller coaster for him, but he needed to access that emotion in his life. And that was our beginning. We lasted through our first years of university, but it was a commuter relationship and I wanted to have something going on at home. So <laughs> I broke up with them and we didn't see each other for 19 years. We're, wow. we're not aware of one another for 19 years until my second book of poetry, Raw Heaven, was I did not realize how lucky I was to have Random House become my publisher at that point. And he saw the review in the New York Times and thought, this has, this has to be the Molly I went to high school with. And at the same time, I bumped into someone who was a James Joyce scholar who told me that Michael Groden, my high school boyfriend, had become a distinguished James Joyce scholar. So we both became aware of one another and both wrote to one another. 
and then met up at, at a little cafe on Second Avenue in New York because Mike was a marathon runner and he had come in to, to run the New York Marathon. And we began an adult relationship. We were both involved with other people, but we reconnected. And one of the things that happened was I knew that he had been seriously ill. He'd had melanoma at the age of 33. So we're, we're in our late 30s by the time we reconnect. But he never said anything to me about it in the cafe. As a matter of fact, we've been sitting outside and he said, let's move into the shade. And that was the only indication that he, he had this serious skin cancer. And I was so both upset and moved by that that I wrote a poem about it. And I was so, again, so lucky that it was ended up being published in the Paris Review. And so I sent him that copy of the Paris Review because I, I wanted to somehow bring this up, but I didn't know how to. And that started this whole, a whole long series of phone calls that went on over years, six, seven years. And then finally, when his relationship, I don't know, withered away and my relationship exploded, we were in touch again. And he invited me to London, Ontario. And I said, sure, I'll, sure, I'll come. I came for the weekend. And I got off the plane and I thought, wow, Molly Peacock, you've been getting in at the shallow end of this pool. I mean, six, seven years have gone by. Finally, we actually had physical contact in that airport as we hugged one another. And then, then I mean, from then on, we knew. I mean, it, it was absolutely, it's time to spend the rest of our lives together. I feel like I, I lived inside of a novel that somebody else was writing. And he felt that way too. And we were very, both very literary, but I don't know very much about James Joyce and don't have a deep affection for James Joyce, I, I admit, even, even though I've certainly done my share of studious reading. And Mike always would say to me, oh, I don't know anything about poetry. So we, so we both were very literary, but we didn't, we didn't overlap in, in our areas. And that was the case when we were teenagers. I would say to him, I can't stand your taste in literature. What are you reading math for? <laughs> and he would say, I don't get why you're reading such and such else. And I can't believe I was so obnoxiously forthright about it. But it, it, it gave us a lot of space. We did the same things, but we had a lot of space. And we also were able to because we, we got married when we were 45, we had lives that were established and we lived around the circumstances of one another's lives. So we didn't feel that we had to make a conventional marriage. In the beginning, we just had a rule, no more than two weeks apart. I, Mike spoke at many international conferences. I was very active as a poet, giving readings all over North America at that point. We just managed to merge our schedules and meet in the middle. And miraculously, we were making a structure pretty much the way you make a poem. <laughs> it sounds very complimentary, you know, how you were able to navigate your lives in parallel, but then also together. And I know 
that you individually, but also within your relationships decided, you know, you didn't want children. Mm. And from what I understand, you kind of almost unexpectedly became an advocate <laughs> for other women who also didn't want to have children. Just to, to touch on some specific things that you are a part of more recently, a documentary about it, which is My So-Called Selfish Life by Trixie Films. I think it came out in October 2022. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this advocacy work? One of the things I did say to Mike at the beginning is, you know, I said, I've had a tubal ligation. I'm not, if you want a different kind of marriage with someone and a, and a family, I, I'm not, I'm not your girl. So we, we, and I was, I was nervous about saying that because I wanted to have the relationship, but at the same time I thought I gotta, I gotta clear this up. But it was Mike who urged me to write about it. And because I have the space in New York, my life was too crammed. But when I would be with him in London, there were fewer demands on my time. And he gave me some paints. And I said, oh, I don't have time to paint now. And he said, well, you did when you were younger. And he said, you, you wrote prose when you were younger. And I thought, I could do this now. I could turn in another direction. So I began trying to discover the roots of my very firm conviction that although I am a nurturing person, and I think it's very clear to many people I've worked with who've been my students, my own just gestures to people in the world, I also did not want to be a mother. And part of that, but I wanted to discover the reasons for it. And they were complex reasons, and I made that decision many different times in my life. It wasn't just as a little tiny girl. I'm four or five years old and my grandmother says to me, don't ever have children, Molly. And my, and my, and my, and my mother says, you can do anything you want. In this working class household that didn't have any books in it, where the expectations were pretty much you grew up and nobody in my family had gone to college. It was a, a very, very different world than the one I'm projecting here in this podcast. And as I wrote about it, and I realized that idea of not having children was introduced to me by my own family, and that in many ways, by not having children, I was living out my mother's dream for a room of her own something that she did not have until much later on in her life. And also realizing that I had a context, that I was among the first generation of women who really had that choice because there was birth control. And I could choose to create this life for myself. And the putting together of a life for myself was like the putting together of a poem. And also figuring in there was the fact that I had a very, I had a violent alcoholic dad, a World War II PTSD traumatized man self-medicated with alcohol. And if you have an alcoholic parent, you have a 50% chance of becoming an alcoholic yourself. That didn't happen to me, but it did to my younger sister. And because of my parents' financial situation, they're working class people. My mother worked and my dad worked. And I was the caregiver at home to my younger sister. I was the person who had to cook dinner for the family and then supervise my sister's homework, make sure that 
I, my father had a shirt ironed for work, do all of the things around the household that needed to be done because my mother worked in a little grocery store that she had from 10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. I didn't realize until now, looking back, I unfortunately ended up as I was responsible for all of the activities, very little of the joy of being a wife and mother. And that played into this too. But also, I do feel that motherhood is a choice and that a woman does not have to define herself as a mother. And I say this to Louise and Jillian, who have this fabulous mother-daughter relationship and a mother-daughter podcast. And I admire you both <laughs> so much. And people, people somehow think that if I've chosen not to have children, I'm like anti-mother. I so am not. I, you know, I'm totally not. And my mother and I had a wonderful relationship. But she also, and she never pressured me to have children. She saw that freedom that she wanted to have. And I think we cooperated in that. Not, we never talked about it, but I think that that's kind of what we cooperated in. So I end up writing the memoir. And I, I think, okay, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to open up this whole issue. And then a whole national conversation is going to start. <laughs> and what happened was very different from that. We were doing some background research and there was a review from the New York Times from when you wrote Paradise Piece by Piece, which was in 1998. And the title of the review about the whole book, the title was No Children. <laughs> and that, and that, and that's what would happen. It's, I, I did not, I didn't really use the phrase pronatalism. But this book was published in a deeply pronatalist culture, and, and that has not changed. So this became, when I was interviewed, the interview was almost like, tell us what's wrong with you. I mean, what on earth happened <laughs> that you wouldn't want to populate wow. the world? And I would patiently have these conversations, and I wouldn't oversimplify, because I don't think this is a simple issue. And I, I do think it's the central issue of every female-identified person's life. And a psychologist who wrote a wonderful book called Reconceiving Women, Separating Motherhood from Female Identity, her name is Marty Ireland, said to me, well, let me know what happens with your book. And I thought, well, why is she asking me that? She said, well, with my book, there was a flurry of activity and then it just sort of went under, I don't know, under the waves. And I thought, oh, that's not going to happen with my book. I'm going to go, I'm going around talking to everyone about this. But of course it does. This is an issue that surf, it does ride an ocean. It's, if this issue were a, a mammal, it would be a porpoise that's surfacing and then diving and surfacing and then <laughs> diving. As, and that book came out in 1998, and I still, in 2023, receive the occasional letter from someone who finds the book and writes to me. And one of the things that happened is that Therese Schechter and her wonderful independent documentary company, Trixie Films, wanted to make a film about 
young women making this choice. And I'm very pleased to be one of the older, one of the gray-haired talking heads in the film which is really about a very diverse group of young women who've come at this issue and made this decision. And that, that, that is the child-free movement. And I am very happy to, to, be, to act as the occasional godmother to that movement. And I, I'm a poet. I never started off to be a spokesperson for the choice not to have children. But it is a choice for reproductive rights. And now, more than ever, this is a crucial choice and one that is threatened all the time. And I think that the young women in the film are quite shocked to find themselves in a situation that is difficult and in some ways politically primitive as what women of my generation felt themselves in. The sexism has not gone away. The sense that you don't have the right to make your own choices has not gone away. And here we are. And I'm pleased to say that my so-called selfish life, which is the, the title of the documentary, is from my memoir, Paradise Piece by Piece. And that these issues are alive and they need to be spoken about. And I'm, it's a privilege for me to speak about them and to answer your questions because it's fundamental to how a woman, or I'm just going to say to how everyone decides to live their life. It is fundamental and has to do with whether the culture feels that an individual person can make choices and that those choices and can construct a life from free choices. And that freedom often is imperiled. It's imperiled now. And I think that it requires a whole conversation, a wide, deep conversation about what it means to nurture in a culture that my not being a mother has allowed me to do things that I never would have had the chance to do for the culture. Billions of people have read poems on the New York City subways and buses because I took the time to volunteer with a friend, Elise Passion, to get that program going 25 years ago. In Canada, thousands of people read poetry every year because of the Best Canadian Poetry Series. There are ways that people influence the quality of other people's lives that don't have to be biological. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's amazing too that, you know, this piece that you wrote 25 years ago, how relevant it still is today and how it's transcended through time to being a part of this documentary right now. And could you tell us a little bit too about the other poetry work that you're working on right now? I'm thrilled to sort of circle circle back to that and, and say that to answer your very first question, Jillian, where you were asking me how, how, how did it happen that I've had such a long lived career? Yeah. Part of it is that you think you write, come back. 
you just don't read, you know, you don't know it. You don't realize it. Who knew that my writing a memoir w would connect in all of these ways and would surface now as, as so crucial. One of the things that happened that might be clear from the way we were speaking about my husband is that he passed away. He died in March of 2021. He died of his melanoma, but he was a 40-year melanoma survivor. Pretty remarkable. Wow. And after that, I wrote many, many poems about him, about his illness, about being a caregiver. I have a lot to say about caregiving because women in, the, in this culture are the caregivers. All of the female-identified people out there who are putting in hours and hours of caregiving. What can I say? I'm just waving hello and sending you positive thoughts. I wrote this poem. Many people will know a poem by William Blake that begins, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. And William Blake was talking to a tiger. It's like the poet's talking to an animal. In this poem, I'm talking to an apple. I make a real, this is a real, <laughs> this is a real leap. I, uh, I'm courting disaster here, but I'm talking to an, an apple. And this is my most recently published poem. And it is going to be the last poem in my new book called The Widow's Crayola Box, which is about all the emotions that come to a person after an experience of loss. It's not just the eight-color Crayola box. It's the 152. And here is <laughs> here's Honey Crisp that was just published in the Canadian magazine, The Walrus. Hello, wizen face. Hello, apple. Understudy in the fridge since March. It's September. Hello, wrinkly red cheeks. I'll bet you're almost a year old, born last autumn, kept in the fruit storage, built half underground on the farm, then in the snow, sold to me. Hello, my honey crisp. Well, my honey, no longer crisp. Are you asking why you haven't been eaten by now? Because that man hewed to his routines. An apple for lunch every day. The same red punctuation. You were earmarked for the date he slipped from my arms and we both slid to the floor. Red Angel, are you listening? 911, hospital, hospice. And 10 days later, you were about six months old then. He died and was carried to a cold shelf. Hello, smiley stem. Hello, days moving you from spot to spot. Hello, week where I forgot and left you at the back and went about my new life. Greetings, new groceries! Their jumble causes a rearrangement of your bin, so I have to pick you up. Would you rather have been eaten and lived on as energy? Not yet, 
not yet my palm. Hello, soft, wrinkled face in my palms. So that's honey crisp. And when I say not yet, not yet my palm, that's in italics and palm is the French for apple in a bilingual culture something that most Canadians know. Not all Americans know that, though. And I say this as a dual citizen. I'm an American and a Canadian with one American grandmother and one Canadian grandmother. So then when I say my palm, I can say, hello, soft, wrinkled face in my palms. Beautiful. Beautiful, Molly. I'm going to give a PS and thank both of you for allowing me to consider my whole life as a writer through your gentle and incisive questions. It's been a joy. Okay. I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, um, I'm going to jump right into it, but when Molly was talking about having that kind of shape and structure of her poetry and then like mm-hmm. that kind of giving her access to the creativity, I just, I know we talked about it already with her, but I think it's really, I mean, relatable is not the right word, but it's like a great tool for people mm-hmm. to use and regardless of the art form. Right. It's like, I felt it was like a key. She kind of yeah. gave us the key that unlocked the, ah, it was like she, mm-hmm. she like gave, bombed in the truth, you know, of the, mm-hmm. or the secret. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I loved also how she said that the structure gave her freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and I've experienced that, you yeah. know, with my creative work. And I don't know, you know, you and I are both creative, but we have different creative arms. Did, did you find that or do you find that, that the structure actually? Yes. Definitely. Like, I'm just thinking even in school, if someone, if like a prof gave us an assignment and didn't give any kind of criteria, that that would be so much harder to come up Mm. with something than if there was some kind of like box we had to check or somewhere we kind of had to end up or criteria we had to use along the way. When you were just saying that, I couldn't help but think about our early, early conversation with Donna Crichton. And Donna, as a singer-songwriter, she can write anything. You tell her, I want a song in the style of, and she can do that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's unbelievable. She has figured out the key, right? She has the Mm -hmm. key to that structure. Mm -hmm. And when we worked on Northern Daughter together, she had a challenge just, like, creating music based on whatever you feel and she was like tell me give me the right. give me the structure right yeah. like and I think we all face that and I think that Molly makes it seem deceptively simple because she's incredibly prolific but I I agree I loved that there were so many nuggets but I loved that one too mm-hmm. the one thing we didn't get to talk about with her because as we as you said at the beginning like <laughs> you know where do you start with Molly Peacock mm-hmm. she has been doing also biographies and intensely researching right yeah we didn't writing. really get into that too much and i've read the flower diary and that's described as so her the subtitle of the flower Di- flower diary in which mary heister reed paints travels marries and opens a door and then these are women who were doing like 
prolific work that was mm-hmm. has been lost to time. Their voice is lost to the noise of life and time, mm-hmm. right? And then the other one is called The Paper Garden. Mrs. Delaney begins her life's work at 72. And what's so fabulous about what I remember about both of these, first of all, the flower and garden imagery, which is just so lush, and I'm, I'm all into that. It's that yeah. Molly makes them very relatable by weaving a bit of her story into them too, how she relates, what doing the research meant, mm-hmm. what, just yeah. why it's important to know these women's stories and what how they can inform us mm-hmm. in our lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, it's beautiful. Highly, high, highly recommend both those. It's amazing that she can write in these very different styles. As a, yeah, I was I was just going to comment on that. All the things about the, her poetry that we love, you know, the curated words and the shaping, that's all in these biographies as well. Mm-hmm. So it's beautifully stylized. Yeah, wow. I'm grateful that she was willing to come on and, and talk to us. Me too, me too. Yeah. And I'm also excited about the work that she's starting to, again, all new, mm-hmm. all new stuff. Well, thank you again to Molly Peacock for being here with us. You can find Molly on her website, mollypeacock.org or on Instagram at mollypeacockpoet. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, download the episodes, like, and review the Soundlens podcast, and share it with someone you think would enjoy it. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Soundlens Podcast. And for more episodes, visit soundlenspodcast.com. Bye, Mom. Bye, Han. 